My name's Randy. Um, one of the teachers uh, here at the church. Um, today is what day? Oh, Easter. Thank you. I had, oh, yeah, there it is. Right there. It's Easter. For over two millennium, Christians have remembered and celebrated the death and resurrection of Jesus on this day, even as we are doing today. Remembering, reflecting, considering, even welcoming and embracing. We're currently in a series called Being Born Again, The Restoration of Humankind. And very briefly, I'm going to give uh, some summary of what I've been touching on, working through. First week, we talked about the nature of God, and particularly that God is love. We also referenced the nature of humankind, that we have been created by God unto purpose and relationship with him. The nature of the human person, we will often reference uh, body, soul, spirit, but these elements of who we are that have been created and made within us to be able to relate to God and to one another. We also talked about God's intention for humankind, which was good. When God created the heavens and the earth and humankind and the world and the animals, he said it's good. This is very, very good. But then there was the human dilemma. In order to be free to love God, we also had to be free to not love him. And so humanity was given the ability to choose. And each of us, scriptures say, have made that choice at one time or another to live on our own, to live according to wanting the world the way we want it. And there is therefore then a problem of sin. We are broken. We are sinful. Our relationship with God has been broken. Our relationship within ourself is broken. Our relationships with one another are broken. Even our relationship to our earth is broken. Then we looked at the effects of God dealing with this sin problem by becoming human. And we answered the question, why did God become human? I essentially said that there was no other way for God who is in his very being love to deal with the problem of human sin and to restore humankind to live eternally with him in an intimate and interactive relationship. There just was no other way to accomplish it. And Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all would be made alive in Christ. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to him. Last week I also attempted to answer the question of what was Jesus' purpose And I did that by looking at uh, seven verses from the New Testament that in various ways uh, describe that purpose. Matthew 1, 18 through 21 speaks of Jesus saving his people from their sins. And I mentioned that word save is actually the word sozo that was referenced by uh, Kevin this morning, sozo ministry prayer. The word sozo is the word save. And it, it means not only to save, 
which would be parallel to deliver, but it also means to heal and to make whole. Matthew 4:23 through 24 describes three aspects of the ministry of Jesus, his activities. He taught in the religious centers. He preached the good news of the kingdom and he sozoed people through deliverance, healing, and making them whole. Acts 10.38 describes Jesus as having the power through the Holy Spirit to do good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. John 1, 1-5 and 14 connects Jesus' divinity with his humanity and describes Jesus as the one who gives us life. 1 John 3.8 describes Jesus coming to destroy the works of the devil. John 10.10, Jesus himself describes his purpose as having come to give true life in all its fullness. And then a verse that we are very familiar with, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And I talked about how that word eternal life has in t- at times led us into misunderstanding what it was that Jesus came to do. And we will sometimes think of eternal life as being something that we get after we die. But Jesus, in another portion of John, chapter 17, while praying for his father, praying with his father, describes and defines the words eternal life this way. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is to know God. And the word know, when it's used in the Bible, as it is here in a relational way, it always means to know someone in an intimate and interactive way. Not to know about This morning I want to talk about what has been described throughout history since the writing of the New Testament as the atonement. But before we do that, let's pray. We welcome you, Papa. We welcome you, Jesus. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. Might you speak to us today. Might these words that you have led me to share become words of life, the very words of Jesus. Might we know that we know that we know that we know that you love us that you have chosen us, that you have called us and are with us. Might we grow in knowing you today. In Jesus' name, amen. The doctrine of the atonement, and don't go to sleep on me. This is very important, I promise. Doctrine of the Atonement is presented throughout the entirety of the New Testament in many ways and through many images 
and examples. According to Christian faith, since the very inception of the church, through the coming, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, humankind was reconciled to God and invited to live in a harmonious, interactive relationship with him. The English word atonement originally meant at one meant. Atonement, at one meant. I didn't put it up on the screen. You can figure it out, a couple of hyphens. And it means to be in harmony with someone. And is essentially related to the work of Jesus through salvation. There have been a lot of attempts to explain how and why Christ's coming, life, death, and resurrection reconciled humankind to God. And those are called theories of the atonement. And theories of the atonement are themselves not set forth in the New Testament, nor is any theory of the atonement endorsed in any of the great creeds such as the Nicene Creed. What these theories attempt to do is answer the question, what happened? How were we reconciled to God? And on one hand, do we really need to know how? Can we not just go, hey, I got it. God reconciled, offered it to me. But I think there's a problem there in that One, we would probably minimize the cross and very potentially minimize our relationship in the process. Throughout the New Testament are are literally hundreds and hundreds of verses that refer to or speak of the reconciling or saving work of Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. And to attempt to reference all or even a significant quantity of these would take an entire book and probably a year to do. So this morning I'm going to do a lot of summarizing, um, identifying some references, but not as many as could be. So here are uh, a, a set of the words that are common clusters that are related to this work of the atonement. And and when you see in a moment the quantity and kind of these words that will be all familiar to you, you're going to kind of go, yeah, there's a lot of verses that talk about those things. Verses and words that describe atonement are sin, sins, sinned, and sinner. Die, died, dead and death. Perish, lost and destruction. Life, live and living. Hate, hostility, enemies. Save, salvation and savior. Set free, deliver and loose. Sacrifice, offering, atone and ransom. Forgive, forgiveness, forgiven. Reconcile. Reconciliation, justify, believe, trust, faith, redeem, redeemed, redemption, regeneration, new life, new creation, eternal life. 
So in attempting to describe how and why Jesus accomplished our atonement, numerous of these words have made their way into the theories, the various theories of atonement. Well, this is, as, as it sounds really huge, and it was a huge amount of material that I've been working through over the last few weeks, I am going to be summarizing, and so it won't be quite as bad as it could be. Because <clears throat> this is not a, I'm not a professor, and this is not a seminary course. This is about life. It's about how we live. It's about our relationship with Jesus. And it's about learning about God's love. For the first couple of centuries of church history, there really wasn't very much theorizing about the atonement, meaning to sort of try and answer the question, what happened? But Christian writers were initially content to simply allow the scriptural quotations, the analogies within them, to simply speak for themselves. But gradually there was this felt need for more by way of explanation. So questions like, what happened between Jesus and the Father? How did the cross and the resurrection accomplish what it did? Was it something for all or only for some? Did it apply to all or were some left out? Over the centuries, there have been really not more than a handful or so of theories, which is kind of amazing, that can be described as having sort of church-wide or movement-wide acceptance. And before describing these, though, I really, really, really want to say and hope you can hear that these are theories. These are attempts to take information, data from the scriptures to understand a mystery. To understand this amazing thing called salvation, called the atonement, called the incarnation and try and help us understand. And all have all of these theories have positive characteristics that will that will ring and 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 they make sense and yes that's that's right that's true. But some also as a result have other characteristics that are less than satisfying. More emphasize some one aspect or a couple aspects of the atonement while others reflect and reference other elements. So the reality is is that none of these theories are really complete in themselves. And you might more think about it instead of alternates like this is true or this is true, more talk about them as being five ways, five, five or six ways to understand what happened. Differing aspects of and elements of things that happened. And so some of the theories sort of talk more about this, this, and others talk more about that. So hopefully we can get that. And instead of this, well, it's this one or this one, might we just suggest that all of them have these positive characteristics that are good attempts to describe what happened. So the first one that I want to reference is the ransom theory. This was one of the earliest and first Uh, theories of the atonement, and essentially simply says that through sin, by sinning, humankind sold ourselves into captivity to the devil. 
And God offered Christ's death as the ransom payment to free us. But instead of the devil, in a sense, getting Jesus instead of us, the resurrection broke his power over death and freed him from the devil's clutches. Now you can imagine that's a little edgy as a theory, but it was one of the earliest and has remained one of the many. Two, word, two times the word ransom is used in the Gospels. Both Mark and Matthew quote the exact same language when saying, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul uses the word a couple times. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. And Peter also uses the word in 1 Peter 1.19, the ransom theory. A second theory is the satisfaction theory. And it states that we owe God, our creator, lives of perfect obedience. And as we have failed to live perfectly obedient lives, we are in God's debt. God cannot simply forgive us because God's honor and justice require that we either pay the debt or be punished for failing to pay it. Kind of weird, isn't it? And But the problem is, is we cannot pay the debt. Therefore, Christ, who was sinless, paid the debt for us by living a perfect life and accepting death, satisfying our debt. Someday we need to figure that one out. Um, there's a verse, of many, again, there's always lots of verses that are referenced in these, but one I will share with you, Colossians 2, uh, 13 and 14. When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ having forgiven us all our sins, having canceled out the certificates of debt consisting of legal demands which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So the idea that God is owed and Christ took that and paid that debt through the cross. Satisfaction theory. A third that is perhaps and probably the most recognized and the most held broadly is the punishment substitutionary theory. It's similar a little to the satisfaction theory, but it emphasizes the payment of the penalty of death that we deserve more than talking about a debt. Punishment substitutionary theory would say that Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners that God imputed the guilt of our sins upon Christ and he in our place bore the punishment that we deserve. This is described as full payment for sins which satisfied both the wrath and the righteousness of God so that he could therefore forgive sinners without compromising his own holiness couple of verses, uh, 
2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Galatians 3.13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Now, these theories accurately highlight two of the profound truths of the atonement. That Jesus died for our sins and has reconciled us to God. But note that none of these take into account how Jesus' life or resurrection are part of of his work of atonement, which, in my opinion, would say obviously they are. How the, and they don't highlight um, the relational aspect of God and humankind as being involved in Jesus' work of atonement. And we began this series talking about the relational aspect of who God is, that within his being, he is relational, he is love. The triune God is a perfect community of love and humankind has been created to join and be a part of that community of love. But sin broke that. So the question is, how is this relational aspect of God understood through the work of the atonement? So we will sometimes stop there in our considerations saying that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins and reconciled us to God and ensured that we will go to heaven when we die. Which is all true. But that's not the whole story. That's not all that happened through Jesus' life, death, death and resurrection. There are other elements and aspects Another theory of the atonement is the recapitulation theory. I had to look up that. I looked up that word and its meaning about ten times over the last few days. I kept having to go back to it. What does that mean? And the recapitulation theory links the atonement much more significantly to Christ's incarnation. And it states this, that the atonement of Jesus reverses human, humanity's course from disobedience to obedience. It says that Jesus recapitulated, meaning he repeats or he redoes all the stages of human life. And in doing so, he reverses the course of disobedience that was initiated by Adam. Through Adam and Eve's disobedience, the process of the development of the human race went wrong. Something went wrong. And the course of its wrongness could neither be stopped nor reversed by any human effort or means. And in this view, Jesus is seen as the new Adam who succeeds where Jesus failed. And because of that success, Jesus undoes the wrong that the first Adam did. And because of his union with humanity, he leads humankind on to eternal life and morality in life. 
Essentially, this is suggesting that in Jesus, the whole course of human development life was perfectly carried out and realized in his obedience to the purpose of God. Everything done in Adam is overturned by the work of Jesus Christ. Adam's introduction of death is countered by Christ's introduction of grace. Condemnation came through the first Adam. Righteousness comes through the second Adam. One kind of lengthy passage, um, because it's hard to catch a little bit, will be from 1 Corinthians 15. Um, Numerous verses kind of hold together. For since death came through... a, A couple of verses, excuse me, I'm sorry. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For... As all die in Adam, so all will be made alive to Christ. And then uh, Romans 5, 12, 15, 18, and 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death came through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Which is all true, but doesn't talk about the cross or the resurrection. It's true. It's a part of what Christ did, but not the whole. So there's one more theory of atonement that I'm going to introduce this morning and then at least next week we'll spend more time sort of fleshing it out, we might say. Kind of like the incarnation was fleshed out. Okay. Um, This theory is called the relational theory of atonement or is sometimes called the participatory theory of atonement. And this theory builds upon the recapitulation theory, but goes beyond it to include and discuss those other aspects that are a part of the atonement, at least in one way. So the recapitulation theory that we just referenced says that as the second Adam, Jesus reverses humanity's course from disobedience to obedience, undoing the wrong that we had done through living a life of obedience to God, dying on the cross, and raising from the dead on our behalf as a representative. The relational theory declares that through Jesus' life of sinless obedience, that in him, humankind lived in sinless obedience. Through Jesus' death on the cross, in him, humankind died in payment for sin. Through Jesus' resurrection, in Him, humankind was raised up into a new kind of life. 
Through Jesus' glorification, in Him, humankind was glorified. Jesus is not only representing humanity, but all of humanity is incorporated into Him, into His life, into those works and deeds that He did. Atonement is more than representative. It is more than Christ in our place, on our behalf. It is a representation that actually includes us in Him. When we go through the New Testament, particularly Paul, but scattered throughout, are these statements about in Christ. And might I suggest that for most of us, we don't really have a grid for that. What, what, what do you mean in Christ? And that's where my original talk where we talked about spiritual and spatial and physical. Those of you who guess won't know what in the world I'm talking about, but others will. The spiritual is not spatial. For Christ, for God to be in us as spirit works. To, for Christ to be with us, for the Holy Spirit to lead us and be in us, works in a, space, in a spiritual way, but not in a spatial way. And in a similar way, through God's amazing grace, through the life, through the death, through the resurrection, through the glorification of Christ, we were in Him. God affected the redemption and restoration of humanity in and through Jesus, the second Adam, altering forever the human situation. Let's look at one of the many passages. And before we do that, guys uh, that were going to help me with the crosses, we wanted to give you a, a token. Sometimes images are helpful, icons And one of the most profound icons in our world is the cross. Just go ahead and just start passing them out. I'll chat about it for just a moment while you're doing that. Now, when we look at the cross here or in a Catholic or Episcopal church, we know what that means. It's good. It's a great thing. But it's an implementation of death. And so we're providing a cross, a wooden cross, for you to have, to take home, to have with you now, to remember that our salvation cost God big time. Second Corinthians chapter five verses fourteen through twenty one. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one 
has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view, even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view. We know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself in Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This redemption, this restoration, this salvation that Christ has wrought for all of humankind is available to all. But it is appropriated or activated in one's life by faith, through faith. All died in Christ, but not all have activated that gift, not knowing the need or wanting or understanding, but those like us have through faith. Listen to John 3.16 again. We referenced it earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved For Jesus so loved, the Holy Spirit so loved all that Christ came, lived, died, rose again, and we in Him all lived, died, and were raised again. But not all have experienced or embraced this life. What is required is a human response to the gift that is given and provided by God, which is through faith by the Holy Spirit. I've used this illustration lots of times over the years. Imagine it's Christmas. Christmas Day is already gone. All the presents are, are all given out. They've all been opened. And as you're putting your decorations away, you find a present. 
And it says, from someone. And you think, oh, wow, that's awesome. I missed this. I'm going to keep this. And we keep the present all wrapped up. Have we, are we experiencing the blessing of the gift? Eh, it's pretty. I like it. I put it up on my shelf. But it's, it's, it's not, it's not meeting me. I'm not relating to it. It's just sort of this thing. And for some, salvation's a little like that. Yes, Jesus died on the cross. He raised again. He's in the heaven, seated with God. Great. My little presence on the shelf. I got it up there. But it's not having any real interaction with our life. That's one of the challenges of some of these theories of the atonement. They're sort of outside of us. But in this relational theory, we're right in it. And we participate. We are involved through faith. This possibility of new life is laid hold of by faith. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2. But God who is rich in mercy out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him. In him. In heavenly places. In Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us. In Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And there's a confusion related to this passage that I want to try and help us with. Notice there, this phrase, by grace you have been st- saved, is stated twice in this text. The first time, by itself. By grace you have been saved. The second time, it's followed by the words, through faith. Now, grace is, is most frequently in the Christian community described as God's unmerited favor. And is thought of similarly as mercy. And it's related to forgiveness. Grace in this passage, in the Greek, is the word charis. And it generally means favor, kindness, goodwill, or gift. Nowhere does it contain the element of unmerited. Mercy is unmerited or undeserved favor. When you study through the entirety of the New Testament, pulling all of those passages referencing grace, we find a different meaning that makes the most sense out of those passages. And I had, I had pulled that all together 
but knew there would not be time for it. So I would be happy to share the scriptures in this. But here's what I want to suggest. This word grace does mean favor. It does mean the kindness of God. It means the provision and care of God. But it's beyond that. And we have, over the, my, Claire and I and numerous others, have, have come to understand grace as the empowering presence of God enabling us to be what we were created to be and to do what we are called to do. It's about God's participation in our life, His provision of power and ability to do what we cannot do. There's a a partnership through grace. God, through grace, provides the gift of salvation through Christ. And that, that is what we have not earned. The work and action of salvation is all God's, but there is something we must do. What this verse would sound like, what this phrase would sound like if we included that was by God's empowering presence you have been saved. And what it is that we participate in, the part we bring, is faith, belief. John 3.16 Whoever believes... There's an activation within us. There's a part for us to play, to receive. It is a free gift. It has been provided for all. But it must be received and welcomed. Let's look again at this verse with this kind of understanding. For by grace, God's empowering presence, you have been saved through faith. And this grace is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. What is not our own doing in this verse is grace, not faith. The action and power of God through redemption, restoration, and salvation is that part He brings. Salvation is a result of grace, God's favor, kindness, and goodwill. It's God's gift, but it is appropriated, it's activated in one's life by faith. And not just one time. Faith is required every day of our lives to activate and to believe in Christ and what He said and what He called and what He provided. We must believe, we must have faith, not just once sometime in the past where we went forward and prayed a prayer. We need faith on a moment-by-moment, daily basis. That is our action that we are called to do to join God's action of grace. We have a part to play in that we must respond, we must act with faith. And faith, I said last week as well as earlier, is more than a mere profession of rational consent. To have faith or belief in Jesus is to trust Him, to have confidence in Him that what He says is true and that as a result we then act upon it. 
we live as if what Jesus said is true. And this is not only related to salvation. Faith in Jesus is to agree with everything and to put what he said into action in our lives on a daily basis. And we're going to talk about more of that in the next few weeks. I want to conclude looking again at Ephesians 2. David? And I'd like you to read this with me out loud. Kind of a little bit like a creed. And we're going to go a little slow, so let's not rush through. But if you would, join me. But God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I'd like you to close your eyes. And I'd like you to, briefly, just for a moment, picture yourself there at the crucifixion of Jesus. It's noisy. It's scary. It's unfair. And Jesus offers his life for you once and for all. His blood was shed for all, all of us, all of humankind. Whosoever would believe. Now, if you would, I'd like you to picture yourself in the garden just outside the tomb. You know the story of, of Mary meeting Jesus in the garden. And I want you to imagine that Mary has just left and you are there. 
Jesus is there. He's been raised from the dead. He bears the marks of the nails in his hands and feet. He's recognizable but not. And he is glorious. Light emanating from his being. And he says to you, for you. This is for you. But it's also for all. Know my love. Embrace my love. Believe in me. And join me in life. For I have come that you might have abundant, full life. I have broken the power of death. I have broken the grip of sin. I have healed your pain. And I fill you with life. Receive my Holy Spirit. Live in His empowering presence. Enabling you to do what you cannot do on your own and to become who I have created you to be. Jesus steps towards you and he wraps his arms around you and he holds you close. Like a loving parent embracing their beautiful child. Holding you like he'll never let you go. Because he won't. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for going to the cross. Thank you for becoming human. Thank you for bearing the brunt of the sin that we have lived in. And would you now, through your Holy Spirit, empower us to walk in newness of life today and tomorrow and the next day. Might the power that raised you from the dead, Jesus, reside in us and empower us to live the life of destiny that you have created every human being to join your community of love, 
to learn to embrace and welcome your love and then to turn and love others and love this hurting and broken world. Deliver us from all that entangles us and stops us from living this full life. Heal the places in our lives that are still stuck. Set us free to freely live no longer for ourselves, but for you who died for us and rose again. Might you, Jesus, might you, Father, might you, Holy Spirit, receive glory from our thanksgiving and our very lives given to you in love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us on Easter. Hope you enjoyed the breakfast and worship was very, very special. Thank you, team. We as a part of our church always invite folks if there is something going on in your life, something's being stirred in your heart, uh, something from the talk, uh, just a need that you have. We have folks that would co- will come on up and will be available to pray with you. If you are, are here today and you're not sure about your relationship with God, you, you kind of know about him, but, but maybe you don't have a relationship with him, we'd love it well. We'd love to be a part of you understanding more fully God's love for you and what he's done. That you too might have fullness of life. So thanks for coming. Have a a great week. We'll see you again next weekend. If I could have some folks come up to pray with me, with us, that would be great. Be available. God bless.